So there's one thing I thought we'd talk about before the show starts, and that's the Omega 2, a $5 Linux computer with Wi-Fi built in. That is nuts. And of course, it's on Kickstarter with Kickstarter Music. We use development boards to build all sorts of cool stuff. But most development boards on the market fell short of our expectations. They're bulky, confusing to set up, and overcomplicated. Damn it. We usually spend far more time reading the documentation than actually using them to build things. Today, we're changing that. That is one of the dumbest Say hello to the Omega 2, the world's simplest (laughs) development board. The Omega 2 is tiny. At less than a quarter of the size of a credit card, it can easily fit into any project. But don't be fooled by its size. The Omega 2 is powerful. It is a full Linux computer. That's right. This tiny purple thing runs the same operating system that powers some of the world's most efficient ah, critical infrastructure. Line. Yeah. The Omega 2 works out of the box. It comes with built-in Wi-Fi and onboard storage. Wow. So it comes to life the moment you power it on. Onboard storage for something that small is impressive. Familiar. Built-in you Wi-Fi too. You control it too. with apps just like your regular computer. We even have an app store so you can discover apps created by the community. The Omega 2 is easy to program. In fact, you don't even have to write any code. It supports Node-RED, a graphical tool this is, that you can use that. to create programs drag and drop by programming. simple drag and drop. I'm having LabVIEW flashbacks. But if you are into writing code, the Omega 2 supports many Make sure programs. You use Sublime. So I was a backer of the Omega 1. And, uh, you know, also uh, TechSnap host Alan Jude, huge fan of the Omega 1. It, they, they actually really delivered on the first Omega. So yeah, they make some pretty funny claims, but uh, they are already, because of their past success, they are just – look at this. They are crushing it with Whoa. a goal of $15,000. They have raised $268,392. Wow. Holy smokes. So the, uh, the Omega 2 is coming. I, I don't know. I'm that interested, cool. especially with the built-in Wi-Fi. This is like, incredible. Yeah. Uh, I wonder this how... Is, this is considerably incredible. Yeah. I'll just back that right now. With Wi-Fi and uh, and storage built in for five bucks, is that really... Will it really be five dollars when it ships? Mm. See, if you pledge ten dollars, <laughs> you get uh, your hands on the Omega 2 Plus, double the memory and storage, and double the fun. <laughs> and it includes a built-in micro SD slot. I actually and shipping by November too. Wow, really? I guess that they've got the supply chain. Yeah, down. they've got the supply chain. Look at that. Look at that compared to a size. Look at that. That's compared to a cherry right there. That is that is Whoa. amazing. That is amazing. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 157 for August 9th, 2016. Unplugged, your weekly Linux podcast that's wrenching all of the news out of the dry August month. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Did I get that right, Wes? Pretty good. Pretty good, good, Chris. I like it. So, actually, I thought at the beginning of uh, the week we were going to have a small show for you. And I hate saying that. Right. And I thought, okay, maybe then maybe we might end up with a medium-sized show. We were hoping for a nice, yeah, medium, August tends average. To be a little slow. People are on vacay. Yeah, you know. exactly. But no, it turns out we have a big show coming up on 157. Linux mm. botnets are on a rampage, apparently. And it's because you suck at managing them, at least according to experts. Ah. 
quote unquote. We'll tell you about this ridiculous story. The guys over at Solus have a pretty nice solid upgrade. Humble has a bundle that actually includes some Linux games. We've got some benchmarks that compare Ubuntu versus Ubuntu on Windows, oh, native versus Windows. Mm-hmm. And it's actually kind of interesting. Snap's got some updates. And then later on in the show, we're going to talk about our favorite SSH hacks. One of the coolest tools ever invented for internet oh, yeah. communications, built right into our Linux box, and there's so many neat things. So we're going to go around the virtual lug and talk about some of our favorite SSH tricks, and Wes and I will share ours. Plus, we'll tell you about a new feature in OpenSSH 7.3 that was just released that's really cool. Then after all of that, inspired by Noah's app pick this week, I'm going to talk about how I have recently started using tag spaces to tag and manage my local encrypted text files with a, with a system that allows me to add keywords and groups and labels and metadata information on top of my file system. Whoa. I'm, yeah. That's very interesting. It's tag spaces. The communities uh, is all credit goes to them, really. I tell you. You know what? Somebody pointed me in the direction. I looked into it, and I was damn impressed. So I've just started messing around with it, and I'm going to give you my quick take on it. But before we do that... We have community updates. So let's bring in our virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. 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 Greetings. Hello. Hello. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, break this next story down with you guys. Hello. Hi. Uh, this, I, you know, I just, I smiled when I saw the headline. It was one of those where I saw it go by and I'm like, open a new tab, coming back to that one later. And it is now time to share it with you. Linux botnets are on... A rampage! This is CNN Breaking News. That's right, Wes. Not just your average rampage. Oh, no. Oh, no. A rampage of epic proportions. Linux-operated botnet distributed denial-of-service attacks have surged in the year's second quarter due to a growing interest in targeting Chinese servers and Wes. This is according to Kaspersky Labs that was in a report last, released last week. Now, I'm scared. I'm just going to come on right and say it right now. I'm scared. How does Linux fit in? Well, the Linux server is the go-to platform, they say, for orchestrating denial-of-service attacks because of its latent vulnerabilities, said Charles King, a principal analyst at Pund-IT. A common problem is they're not protected by reliable security solutions. He goes on to say... Is he perhaps um, a vendor of any of that I could buy for him? <laughs> you should Some Google. sort of yearly contract why don't you, would be Why nice. don't you Google? I have a, I have a hyperlink, but it's pund-it, P-U-N-T-it. Uh, let's see. Their URL is, uh, is uh, pund-it.com. We shouldn't give them any pr- 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 uh, promotion, but that means you, you got to look for me. Uh, right. All right. So he goes on to say, this is a quote from this principal analyst here. What the hell is that even? Uh that makes them prime targets for hackers, especially those that leverage CNC servers to centrally manage and carry out denial service attacks. This is what he told Linux Insider. Deploying leading security solutions as well as utilizing and updating established Linux distros can go a long way to protecting against these kinds of issues. So what are you, what are you grokking when you uh, visit their website there, Wes? Do they have some solutions they could sell me, perhaps? Actually, not much. It's a no. pretty minimal website. <laughs> so this guy's, a, this guy's a BS guy? Yeah. Oh, my it. God. I got to show this on the live stream. This is embarrassingly bad. You have to see this. You, this, is like a, this is like a WordPress <laughs> template. Like, this, is, this is as low budge as it gets. And this is a leading uh, principal analyst that is 
that is railing against. Okay, so he goes on. This expert uh, goes on to talk about how. Uh, and and by the way, listen to the logic in this. Listen to the logic and tell me how much more sense this makes. He goes on. Remember, this is a botnet rampage. Breaking news, you guys. We don't see any changes in tactics, brute force and passwords, exploiting common vulnerabilities in web applications, hijacking or sniffing wireless communications. These are old and well-known issues and threats. Now, brute forcing passwords, exploiting common vulnerabilities in web applications, and hijacking or sniffing wireless communications. How is this taking advantage of latent vulnerabilities, quote unquote, in Linux? Right. Sniffing wireless passwords and brute forcing passwords? That's not latent vulnerabilities in Linux. This is trash. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, not to say that there aren't or that, you know, like Linux right. security is a very legitimate topic, right. yeah. especially in IoT in that range. But yeah, you're right. Like this would, what he was saying before really seemed like it was going to be a kernel level or yeah. something at the core here. Now, uh, John McCarty, who's a, uh, he's got a Cisco cert and he works for Aztec Consulting. And he, this is a direct quote, Linux is becoming more commonplace and used in most embedded systems. Okay, well, that's actually wrong, too. I mean, (laughs) Linux isn't becoming commonplace in the server environment, which is the context in which he's speaking. Linux has been commonplace. So that's, okay, that's a minor thing. And in embedded systems, yeah, Linux is pretty successful. So is NetBSD. So is Android. Mm -hmm. Those are other platforms that are also successful. But he goes on to say these implementations are often not hardened or patched or upgraded regularly, which I agree with that, which has led to these systems being compromised and becoming part of a botnet. I would like to see numbers because to me, and I absolutely have participated in the hysteria. I, I hand I thought up. You're going to say you participated in a botnet? No, there. no. Hand up, hand up to the sky. I have participated in the hysteria, but the hysteria goes something like this: There are so many unpatched Linux devices all around the world that at any moment the entire infrastructure could go Mr. Robot on us, and we could become, we could all come crashing down. Oh my God! All of the patches. That's that's the, mm-hmm. the hysteria. But I. I it, we actually haven't had a doomsday scenario yet. There hasn't been that moment where everything's come crashing down. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it is definitely reasonable and logical to be concerned, prepared, and thoughtful about this issue. Absolutely. But it is not necessarily reasonable to be so hysterical to say that Linux botnets are on a rampage because people can sniff Wi-Fi mm-hmm. and crack passwords. There's a cognitive disconnect here. Mm-hmm. I also wonder who exactly this article is targeting because it's either i mean is it like just the lazy sysadmins who like but there's not a lot of technical details and it really doesn't help like an a a desktop linux user to do anything except for maybe like go try to buy antivirus software that they don't need you know what we'll bring up the antivirus software when it comes back to the ubuntu on windows benchmarks turns out big big difference uh all right so just wanted to put that out there you'll see the news linux botnets on a rampage and it just i scratch my head I don't see Ike or Josh in the uh, in the uh, mumble room today. They're probably too busy blogging or something. They do a lot of that. Uh, they do have some new features, though, in Solus, which I wanted to just mention really quickly because I'm always impressed with at the speed they get this cool stuff out. Uh, they've upgraded their entire GNOME stack from version 3.18 to 3.20. Nice. Yeah, I know, which that's not just like uh, – that's not just nice because GNOME 3.20 is pretty solid. It also means you get things like Flatpak. But mm-hmm. it, it's also what's, – what's really nice is a lot of the GTK desktop distros, not all of them, and with some significant missing notable ones, 
but a lot of them are all landing on 3.20. It seems like a like a it's milestone be- release. Yeah, it's thing. becoming a nice base, reliable. Like I think the 3.20 will become the GTK platform for a while. Yeah. And so it's really nice to see. And that's just, I think, I don't maybe, maybe not. Be but, nice. It's a ra- nice round number. Yeah. And it seems to have a pretty wide adoption. Mm-hmm. Another major change in Solus is uh, they've got Linux 4.7 in there now, which, of course, brings better hardware support and under the hood improvements like uh, AMD GPU support, PowerPlay support, NVIDIA GeForce 800M support, and Maxwell mm. support, as well as C720 trackpad support, finally. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, USB 3.1 support as well as support for third-party generation or random generation of Thunderbolt IDs, Polaris architecture support, multiple Radeon features, and Skylake improvements, as well as whatever SKL Rappel support is in color management. Way be- uh, it's a color management thing that's way beyond. Yeah, me too. But apparently it's in Solus. It sounds like a great girl. Colonel, Dad. <laughs> it does sound like a – you know what? It sounds like a great distro. Yes, it does. Legitimately, I – you know, me, I'm always I'm always the one that's like, oh, it doesn't have these packages. But if, uh, if Ike could get over his uh, apparent philosophical um, hump about snaps and more and more stuff started coming out of snaps, <laughs> I could use Solus's – the, I mean, imagine if the world's largest Linux podcast was using SolOS, SolOS, or however it's pronounced, on its desktop. And, and not only would I be using SolOS on my desktop, but I'd be screwing up that pronunciation all the time. So they'd be getting That's multiple name coverage. mentions. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's great. It's like, and so if they just implemented Snap support, I could almost do it. It's ironic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's ironic. Is this mm-hmm. your uh, tacit really endorsement? Nicely. What's that? Oh. <laughs> Hello, sir. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did a wild, did a wild Ike just show up? Like you say his name three Ike times. And he <laughs> pronounces distro wrong. He's there. Yeah, I love it. Okay. So wait a minute. Because last time you and I talked, you were like the anti-snap guy. <laughs> well, at least you very sure. well articulated the other side, I should say. Yeah, I mean, it's a case of for and against, but... um. I mean, we've been a little bit more flexible about a couple of things lately, like Electron apps are now allowed in Solus. Oh, um, that is a big step. Such as Slack. Like, I was vehemently against that and wanted it to die in a fire, but I've allowed it in because at the end of the day, once you sit down there thinking, it's like, I'm a C guy and I'm going to hate basically every bit of software that's ever been written by anyone, including <laughs> myself. Yep. So I was like, well, <laughs> you know, it's not really about what I want, is it? It's kind of what the users want. Um, so Electron apps and things like that are now finding their way into the repos. I mean, we've had Cody and everything going in in the last few days. Um, so it's really? like massive wow. growth, like huge growth in the last few days. We've completely redone our infrastructure. You know, uh, we've solved massive bugs that have been there since 1.0 in the last few days. Complete stack update, Skylake, Maxwell, Polaris support, everything's just landed. Um, so what I've said is I would allow Snaps as a secondary deployment mechanism, sure. but never as a primary. I think that makes sense. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you wanted that available, like, then yes, that could be done. But I mean, as a primary mechanism, that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to get across. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? And I don't know based. if everyone agrees with you on that point, but I can see your, I can see your perspective on it for sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we spoke about the, the difficulty of dev deployment, didn't we, before, um, as one of the main reasons for wanting something like Snap to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, you've seen what we've done with this last stack of up- uh, updates. That's just kind of not really possible anywhere else ever. <laughs> so the way that we're built works for us, but as a secondary mechanism, yeah, I mean, I can make some exceptions. <laughs> yeah, I, I think at least for our case, it comes down to like sometimes you just, even if it's a little bit ugly, 
There are times where you just need some software. Very practical. Yeah. It's not about it's, – it's about like, oh, I have to, I have, to have this yeah, thing. I'd really love this thing. Right now it will solve my problem. I'll uninstall it later and be done with it. Man, there's even apps where I'll make wine. I'll use wine as a right. compromise for mm-hmm. that. And that really tells right. you something. <laughs> That's what down in the dumps. really do really, really, really strongly request though. Like if you started to use Snap, I'd always suggest like whatever the app is you happen to be using, just request that we put it in repo and we make sure it's integrated natively. Yeah. So do you remember we, was, uh, we spoke before about the – having the maintainers between the package and the distribution, right? Uh, we just spoke about updating to, uh, updating to GNOME 3.20. Um, one of the first bugs I hit was actually launching GNOME Calendar, which all of a sudden decided mm. it absolutely mm. required GNOME Shell for this one particular setting, which happened to be, do I show weekdays or not? And <laughs> these are the kind of bugs that come up where you need the maintainers. Because that could have been deployed as a snap, and it's like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to run. What the hell? What? <laughs> so I think that's where you need that middle ground. And at the end of the day, we would like to get things integrated better just so they run that little bit better for Solus. Like, I mean, we've just integrated Golang 1.6.3, uh, Rust 1.10.0. So you can build these things natively. You can take advantage oh, wow. of our updates. And, you know, like if you've got an app or something, Solus is, you know, we're kind of going to bend over backwards for app developers. Um hmm. So as a, an example, Budgie took something like five or six months to get into Debian um, after going through all the political process with Debian and Ubuntu and then getting it sponsored and monitored because mm-hmm. that's how things roll over there. And that's the same for any new app. In Solus, we kind of need the apps to be here. So we're going to make sure your app is out there and you don't have to wait for a new major release for somebody to get your features or rely on the snap. We'll make sure it gets integrated and it's working properly. So that's kind of our, our value add. So having the native forms over the snap packages, it's always going to be preferable. I will, I will definitely give you this. You know, you are catching my attention with these releases. Yeah, I'm, me too. I'm going, I'm looking at that. I, I and the, I was, Ike, I swear I was thinking of you on Saturday because uh, I went to go fire up a game. I, I think it might have been Starbound, but I can't remember which one it was. And I got a bunch of uh, Intel driver errors. That, that uh, Solus runtime, man. Yeah, I know. I, know. I think about that, that's too. That's exactly what it was. it was. I had to go. Essentially, there's just uh, Arch, Intel, like you, the, really the solution was go use all your native libraries. Right. Go get rid of the Steam yeah. stuff that didn't install. I, I, thought I think to, we've been in the same place. Yep. <laughs> I thought to Solus, and I thought, son of a gun. <laughs> well, I've got news for you there. Oh. So you've got – yeah. I, I was surprised to see this turn up so – some nice soul has packaged up Linux Steam integration in the AUR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that. It doesn't install. Yeah. I forgot why it didn't install for me. There was Okay, so you have to move your user bin Steam to wherever it's configured the uh. Steam to really exist, which is going to be like user lib Steam or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, take a look at the package build to see how they're configuring it. But you need to yeah. mask where the Steam binary is, but then just install that. And then oh. you know you'll be using LSI instead. God, I do so, love. Wow, I do love Arch though. That is so, if it's that is almost the art. You could this could almost be Arch's slogan. If it's great, it'll end up in Arch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's where something maybe that, that to go back to earlier. The snaps can kind of play a role, especially if people are good about yeah. asking you guys to upstream stuff. Is yeah. that kind of a, a you know that's kind of what the AUR does for Arch is like a proving ground. How much interest Wouldn't is? Wouldn't that be interesting if you could derive user interest by watching snap packages and seeing? Okay, well, this mm-hmm. is probably something we should just bring in house, right? Interesting. All right, so let's take a moment and talk about uh, Snap since we've been talking. There's just been a pretty cool update. Um, and uh, then after we talk about this, I kind of wanted to pick Wimpy's brain because he published a Snap package that I am particularly interested in. Uh, so Snapcraft 2.13 and Snapd 2.11 landed with support for downgrading installed Snaps as well as other things like new commands. 
uh, buy, try, find private, disable, refresh, and revert. These new commands let users buy various applications that are being distributed in snappy stores. Uh, also, they obviously allow other – not just Ubuntu, but other distros to do the same thing. They also allow you to find private snaps, which I think is an interesting yeah. concept. Disable installed snaps altogether as well as downgrade any snap package you've installed. Now, this is definitely turning on some of the obvious features that snaps can provide. When logged into a store, snap find dash dash private lets you see snaps that have only been shared with you. It's pretty interesting. So uh, Snaps are getting some pretty cool updates. And I wanted to pick Wimpy's brain about uh, this, one of the Snaps he published recently about maybe the process, what it was like. It's called Pod Publish, a tool for encoding and publishing podcast content and assets, uh, which uh, was, it's, it's been, I think, a fork of something that Stuart Language started a while ago. And uh, I've, seen a, I've, I've seen people that work on some of our Git project, GitHub projects uh, connected, associated with this. So Wimpy, what is Pod Publish, and what was the process like of creating a snap of it and then publishing it somewhere? Uh, Pod Publish is a re-implementation of BV Publish that's written by Stuart Langridge for publishing the Bad Voltage podcast. And is this okay. like a Bash script, or is it something beyond that, or is is it like a series of prompts that it asks you for information about the show and does like the tagging and coding? Uh, no. So Stuart's was um, a Python implementation, and I okay. know Python, so my implementation is in Python as well. Love it. Love it. <laughs> and, there you go. And uh, you, you basically have, in its simple form, you have two commands, uh, encode pod, uh, podcast, uh, and to invoke that, you point that at a configuration file, and in the configuration file, you specify the paths to your artwork and show notes in Markdown and what the episode number is and all of that sort of thing. And it supports string interpolation. So you can define some sort of like global variables, if you like, hmm. in the configuration, and then they'll like be inherited into the various. Yeah, exactly. Like, yes. Yeah, and templating. what does it assume is on the other end receiving this information? Uh, at the moment, it will, in, for the encoding process, it'll encode to OG and MP3 and MKV, which is H264 with AAC audio. And the MKVs are specifically designed to go into YouTube with little to no re-encoding mm, on the YouTube nice. end. Good idea. So, uh, in terms then, of the yeah, go ahead. In, and in terms of the publishing, it will publish to um, SSH or SFTP uh, using just about every authentication mechanism you can, you know, muster. And it will also publish to uh, WordPress. Uh, it assumes PowerPress at the moment as the only back. In fact, actually, it doesn't assume any backend at the moment. It'll it'll publish the WordPress and also upload to YouTube. I'm, I'm and kind you of can cool. you can define in the configuration which of those you have enabled or not. So at the moment, wow. the Ubuntu Podcast YouTube channel is banned for the second time. So we have that feature disabled in our configuration file right now. How does that happen? With wow. We? How do we get banned? Yeah. Because we've got out of copyright theme music from 1927 that somebody claims is oh, but, copyright. See, here's the thing. Uh, that literally happens to me three, four times a day. So yeah. I, don't, I don't understand why you got it. Yeah, it's a, it's, a long, it's a long, tedious story. We uploaded a load of stuff at the end of last year. We basically uploaded the whole back catalogue of, of the previous eight years. Ah, uh, that'll do it. I yeah, and, that, and we got community strikes for that and then got banned. Yep. Yeah, it then doesn't take much. We managed, 
then we persuaded them that we we'd been ignorant but not malicious so we were unbanned but then we'd got a couple of strikes remaining on a few podcasts uh, you know a few episodes Mm -hmm. so i filed a um an appeal against one and it was successful so i thought brilliant i'll just do the same appeal against the other seven and then we got banned again because you're not allowed to appeal more than one at a time yeah isn't that a great system wow and legitimately i have i have thought about on you know just sort of principle getting off of youtube but uh it really is it it really is a good platform for so many people. Like I just yep. asked in, on the yep. Linux Action Show on Sunday, hey, you know, give me a comment if you watch the this entire show on YouTube because it's not common for people to watch long shows. Lots of comments from people saying they did, you know, I watched the entire show. Also, if you're on YouTube, thumbs up this video right here. Do it. If you if you listen or watch the entire Linux Unplugged on YouTube, give it a thumbs up because what I want to demonstrate is there are a huge amount of Linux users that and there's lots of reasons I hear. Uh, work bro- blocks RSS feeds like FeedBurner. Oh, wow. Um, that's a common one that I hear is work blocks X, and the only way I can get around it is I use YouTube DL or something like this to pull your show to down. To pull the playlists or whatever. Yep. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a, a huge percentage of people that have, like, deals for YouTube. Like, if they watch YouTube, they get, a, they get it for free or they get a deal or it doesn't count against their cap or I even see. for ISPs. And right. so that's... So there's a lot of reasons Plus to be on YouTube. Like, makes it really easy to do Chromecast, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I feel you, Wimpy. Uh, I'm curious about this uh, stuff. How from just from the Python angle? Yeah. From like a you know like for the virtual env or pip requirements. How is the pa- snappy packaging gone? Um, that was actually quite straightforward. The only complexity with snapping that application was originally. Uh, that in snaps you can um, stage packages and that means pull pull in a deb and put that in my snap because I want to use Mm. it or things that are in it and I originally staged FFmpeg and that didn't work but now snaps have got um, they originally called wiki parts and I think they might be called online parts now but a, a way of pulling in an existing snap source part into your snap so now the pod publish snap actually builds ffmpeg in the specific way that's required by pod publish within the snap so it's got its own special version of ffmpeg Hmm. integrated within it that's very interesting so that was the only only you know only sort of caveat but it works quite well it works better that way actually because you can you know, Customize it just fully. enable those codecs that you need and keep the size of that FFmpeg implementation minimal. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what, when you, here's something I think we haven't figured out yet with snaps and it's probably going to be true with all the other universal application installers that may or may not come to fruition. Um, there's, there's no, there's no contract. There's no, there's no guarantee on updates. You know, I, uh, I, for example, thought, well, I'll use the Snap for Telegram. And then very quickly discovered that it's several releases behind. And I, I th- then I realized, oh, yeah, of course. Be- just because I'm using a Snap doesn't guarantee I'm going to get updates. Back to Ike's argument about just using, you know, the distro's repos or package management system. But, uh, Wimpy, what are your thoughts on that? When you publish a Snap, what is sort of the implied contract there? And, and what are your intentions with something like with like Pod Publisher or other Snaps you publish? So you, you talked about the new version of um, Snap um, earlier, 2.13, and you mentioned the refresh command. That is the command that will update your installed Snaps. 
But it's still incumbent upon the Snap author to actually at the uh, what? Uh, sorry, go on, carry on. Well, I mean that my my issue appears to be that the Snap the Snap authors are not updating their packages all the time. So the issue is uh, not so much that I don't have a mechanism okay. to update the Snap. Is that they so are not? How will you know what the schedule is? What the, and what, what is that? the? There's no implied contract right. yet. There's no established norm. It seems like some. It seems like it's just up to the whim of does the. Does it follow the master branch? Does it follow stable releases? Does it follow? Yeah. nothing at all. So the version of the snap should tell you what version it's uh, using, whether it's you know tip of Git or a Git um, snapshot or a stable release version, and a lot of the snap activity that took place making snap packages that took place through the snappy plane pen initiative was lots of people um making snap packages to find out where the um edge cases were where um it was difficult to you know create a snap or or impossible in some cases the product of that is to try and get those snapcraft packages that were made um adopted upstream so the the um the view of snaps is it's the upstreams that will actually maintain the snap packages and they will release snap packages in accordance with their release schedules in the same way that they release new tarballs for example i see so like in a, in, in so, a sense you could have it almost integrated in with the ci systems or anything else yeah yeah you can i mean right. um everything in the I think this is true. If it's not true now, it, it, it will be. Everything in the Snappy Playpen is actually built in Docker containers in mm. um, Travis CI, for example. Okay, so, you know, it's quite easy to, to hook that stuff up. I, uh, see, I, I like that. I, I have an idea for a new show, just a really simple show kicking around in the back of my head that would probably be only an MP3 just because it'd just be for fun. <laughs> And I really like the idea of installing Pod Publish as a snap and then using that to publish the show. Ooh! So, because that would be an, okay. that, that'd be a totally cool workflow to to just you know use a snap in a way that is in a production workflow and mm-hmm. something that would you know I just think it'd be a really great experience, especially with these new updates. Yeah. That's where I'm kind of curious to see how snappy snap packages get yes, deployed sir. to enterprises. Because that's one big thing where it's like if we've deployed our new release, we really need to roll back in the next. 20 minutes and so having these kind of tools integrated in yeah yeah you mentioned snap revert and that's the the tool that does that now so you can manually roll back to the previous version and it doesn't just roll back the app it also rolls back the data oh wow for that version as well i see so if you've got if you've interesting you mean when you mean data do you mean application settings data or do you mean user data yeah okay Uh, application settings data. well it could be both potentially it depends how that application is you know whatever's in the sandbox or that's yeah yeah okay uh okay wimpy while we've got your ear um i would love to know more about what seems to be a pretty neat development and kind of makes me want one of these BQM10 tablets even more. I saw it come across your Google Plus feed here. Uh, this to me, and I'm you know just looking on Google Plus, but it it looks like Ubuntu Mate running on the BQM10 ta- tablet, full what? on like touch and everything. But that couldn't be. That couldn't be because this is the Mate desktop and et cetera, et cetera. Yes, it is exactly that. Um, so, um, like all of the best developments in Ubuntu Mate, this came from the community. 
uh, it came from a guy called Marius Quebec. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Um, and and he, he had worked with somebody else uh, to come up with the basic principle of how to get this going. And he posted on G plus and I saw it and said, please document how you did this. Cause I'd be interested in taking a look. So a few days later, he um, pings me and sends me a document on how he did it. And then I looked at that and then started to think about how it could be refined a little bit because, you know, that's what I do. You know, when we had the first Raspberry Pi version, I took a look at that and figured out how it could be slightly improved and the same with the PowerPC port and so on. So I've taken a look at what Marius has done. And essentially the way that he's done this is to take the um, Xenial pre-install image of Unity 8, stick that into a CH root on the BQM10, bind mount the relevant places, launch... Xmir, and then spawn the um oh uh, and then what he does is he then installs the ubuntu mate core meta package over the top of the unity 8 ch root and then spawns the mate session into that Xmir window so and it works um you know touch works and you can rotate the screen and the screen resizes and it does all the things Woo-hoo. you'd expect it to do nice um and you know you've got things like firefox pre-installed which actually work very well and curiously they it seems to work better than the version of firefox that's shipped along with the m10 i haven't quite figured out why <laughs> that can be the case but it appears to be so um because i've done the work with the raspberry pi images i've got a build system for making root file systems for our mate jeff so i've i've been tinkering with that so that instead of having to put the unity 8 image on and then install some extra stuff into it. I've made uh, just a Mate uh, core root file system that mm. you can just extract directly and use that directly. And I'm I'm just trying to clean up some of the rough edges and find out how to integrate it a little bit more seamlessly because it requires a little bit of hackery in order to, order to sort of um, okay, put the scaffolding naturally. up for Xmir and then run the session. You have to do it all through the the phablet shell and i'm trying to mm. find a way to do it directly on the tablet so you can just have a launch right on click it and it starts here's my so use- what this oh go ahead oh go or maybe on. you're about go, to say because I, I think my use case mm. fantasy for this is uh not so much in full-on tablet mode although that sounds useful uh when i need something quickly and i'm on the go but it to me what feels like the the real ace in the whole use case for this would be I connect it to an HDMI hookup and a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse, and now I'm using the Mate desktop on a lower-end resources machine on a large screen that has, you know, perhaps a better response time. But I don't know. I mean, what is the use case here? Because this seems – it seems at first like not – not. it seems like Ubuntu Mate is not itself lended, as you might say, uh-huh. to a touch environment. It is not necessarily the one I think of when I think of a touchscreen experience. No, it's not. Um, I mean, you can do a surprising amount, actually, by touching the screen mm-hmm. on Mate. And in Mate 1.4, we added some new features. So you can make the menu icon sizes and the panel icon sizes much, much bigger mm-hmm. without changing the DPI yeah. of the oh. whole UI. So you can That's actually nice. make those you a little bit more touch-friendly. Myself, I would, I would absolutely, even if there was, let's just say, a compromise in some of the usability and a touch experience, mm-hmm. 
if it meant it was a useful, practical desktop experience, and then I could have the same information and the same state when I'm on the go and when I'm hooked up to a co- yes, the same state. That's the, really what it is. If I have notes in Gedit when I'm when I'm plugged into my wind when on my, my desktop when I'm at the client's desk sitting down trying to remember what it was or when I'm at work trying to remember that great idea I had for the show, that same Gedit doc is still up on the screen. So what's what's important to understand here, this is not Ubuntu Mate running on the tablet instead of Ubuntu Touch. It's like running you, inside Ubuntu Touch, right? It's running inside a CH root inside Ubuntu Touch. And it's uh, effectively like a full screen app. So you mm-hmm. can still swipe in and switch to the native touch apps, but you can go back to it as it is its desktop and it will work with um, Bluetooth mice and keyboards and all the rest of it. Is there a performance penalty there? There doesn't seem to be. It's running oh. extremely well. Hmm. Um, and um, because it's running in a CH root, you've got apt. So you can apt install oh. those applications that you want into that ch root mm. to add the functionality or application richness that might currently be missing from the Ubuntu Touch um, app ecosystem. All kinds of tools I could think of. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a neat, you know. So, Wimpy, what was, uh, in your estimation, what's the what's sort of the fundamental thing that made this possible? Is it once you get Ubuntu on a device like this, the you can sort of just build out from there? Was there some was there something else that made it? Was it a firmware thing? What 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 made the what was the quote unquote enabling technology for this? It's two things. It's Ubuntu and Xmir. Right, because this is this is running under Xmir, isn't it? Yeah, the whole that that whole desktop environment is rendered with Xmir, and the performance is still pretty solid. It's great, boy. That's see, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, look at that, and and it's and so that, there's there's quite a bit of refinement to make this a thing that people can use trivially. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fairly trivial to use if you're comfortable with the shell, but at the moment you have to have a computer hooked up to the tablet in order to, you know bootstrap it all I and see. i'm trying trying to work around that so you can bootstrap it from the from tablet the directly tablet without an external <laughs> yeah. Linux system. exactly that yeah. is going to be something the ipad could never no, do <laughs> right like that's a fundamental yeah and it doesn't have to be you know ubuntu mate that's obviously what i'm interested in it could be zubuntu lubuntu kubuntu ubuntu unity ubuntu gnome you know all of those will do it too hmm. well that sounds super awesome now, picture it, friends. Picture it. You take a BQ tablet like that and you combine it with a data connection from Ting. Oh, I know. I know. It sounds impossible, but friends, it is possible. And it just got better than ever. In fact, if you go to linux.ting.com, you support this show and you get a little money off your first Ting device. Yeah, yeah. In fact, if you – you know, here's another thing. If you bring a Ting device, something when I say a Ting device, that's just a GSM or CDMA device that's compatible with Ting's network mm-hmm. options. They got a page that tells you all about that. They give you a $25 credit. Average first month – like or actually every month if you just have one device, 23 bucks. What? So the $25 credit is kind of a nice thing too if you already have a device. But I, wanna, I want you to wrap your head around this. Ting is just pay for what you use wireless. Six dollars for the line plus Uncle Sam's take. 
and then you just pay for what you use. And and the price for pay for what you use just got even better. Yes, In it fact, did. Uh, our, our friend, Kyra, is here to tell us all about it. Data is now cheaper on Ting. From now on, prices look like this. Need more? It's just $10 a gig. That's what new customers pay. That's what current customers pay. It's simple. We like simple. See for yourself at ting.com slash rates. You know what I hear the most, though, from people that switch to Ting after hearing our spots? You you wouldn't guess because, I mean, I guess I, I do hear quite a bit, OMG, I saved a ton of money. I right. can't believe. I do hear that a lot, especially from folks that are uh, small businesses. But the, the the surprising one is the is the stories I hear about the experiences with their customer service. So they mm-hmm. have really good customer service. And I get emails and tweets in a lot. Uh, in fact, in fact, if you want to send those and keep sending them and go to the general comments and keep sending them in because people have been doing that. And I haven't even really been soliciting this, but keep doing it. And and if you want to take a picture of the note or something that somebody from Ting sends you, please do. Like people are getting personalized and I'm not shitting you here. People are getting personalized gifts from the Ting support. Wow. Like little notes, little notes or like a like a little card or something like that. And it's just – it's blowing people's minds and it's – you know, it's, I don't know if it's something they do all the time or if it's just something they do from time to time. I mean nothing is like the Ting customer service. You call them. You talk to a real human being and there's no BS. They stick with you through a problem and let me tell you, I can testify to that. The one time in over two and a half years I've used Ting, the one time I had to call in was when I was doing the road trip to Noah's house and I don't know. I was in Montana or some – some crazy backward place, and no offense, Montana, and and the t- the Ting rep literally stayed on the phone with me through, for over an wow. hour as we worked through all kinds of bad connectivity uh, problems with the CDMA network, and none of it was Ting's fault, and they still stuck with me till the end to make sure it all got working. They could have punted at any moment, and they didn't. They have tons of nice devices you can buy directly. All of them unlocked. You own them outright, or you can bring your own, or just buy it directly from the Play Store. Check them out at linux.ting.com. You want to go get a line for your tablet and only pay for with the data when you have to go off Wi-Fi from time to time? Exactly. Ting is a great option. Linux.ting.com. So I wanted to just take a real quick moment to mention that the Humble Bundle uh, Survive This Bundle is out. The Humble Survive This Bundle, I guess. Oh, this looks great. Yeah, and it is nice because they've got three actual games, which is somewhat progress. Although all the ones I'm interested in, like... Uh, this first one and this one that looks like it's a Mars one, not available for Linux because mm. apparently they hate me. But there are a couple of good ones like Rust, Early Access, available for uh, Linux. Good, I think this uh, Colot one looks kind of interesting. Tell me about it. Colot. Yeah. I, I actually haven't looked at the game. I remember looking at it during the Steam sale, uh, but it's narrated by Sean Bean. Uh, it's an exploration adventure game. So you kind of have to be into more of that, like a little slower paced, a little creepy, yeah. you know, you're kind that of could be flying around. But it actually, it, it follows this like really kind of creepy incident where a bunch of uh, graduate students died hiking this mountain. Have you seen Rust? Yeah, Rust looks fun too. Yeah, it does. And uh, that's that's almost worth the price of admission right there if you don't have it already. Especially it's nice to get a DRM-free version. It's not. And I, when you give to the Humble Bundle, you can feel good about it. Yeah, I plus mean, it's nice to see Linux stats on there. Yeah. Just saying, just saying. Uh, but yeah, I would, love to, I would love to see all of the games. All of the games. Also, they have a discount on the Humble Monthly. All right, I was teasing it earlier. Um, and this is a little embarrassing to show on air because I don't know what happened. You know, Dustin, I like him. You know, I've met Dustin. He probably doesn't remember because it was years ago. But I met him at, I think it was Ubicon or something <laughs> like that. And... Um, 
Uh, I just don't know about this picture of him over on Linux.com. It, it's like a picture for you, those of you listening. It's the it's all inverted, so the what's black is white, and what's white is black, and then they have the tux. They have Dustin wearing a overcoat. Yep. Which he either and then like a weird blue green glowing skin tone. Yeah, and he on. which he either sent them a picture of him like that. Uh, or he took it just for this, does or it, they shopped it. Does it not look, just a little bit, kind of look like he might be offering you, like, on-the-cheap organs in an alleyway somewhere? In a futuristic, like, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic, like, nuke war kind yep. of movie? Yep. Yes, it does. Mm, new spleen, sir? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it does. Although, that said, uh, he is rocking a bitchin' beard in that photo and uh, repping that, so... You know, pretty much, I'm not even joking, the beard makes the entire photo work, yeah, doesn't it? it really does. If there wasn't for that beard, that photo would suck. But Tux that, needs a beard, too. Quite literally, the beard in that photo saves the rest of it because he's almost got a, I mean, I'm just, I'm getting wafts of Chuck Norris. Yeah, you are. You're, oh, man, without the beard here, the, it would be very different. Right. But with the beard, I am, and yep. that jacket, I am getting wafts of Norris, and then all of a sudden, it's got my attention. Oh, it also has the shitty Windows logo on there. Anyways, if you scroll down, he talks about benchmarking Ubuntu under Windows versus Ubuntu native. And he's doing it on the Lenovo X250 with an Intel i7, 5600 CPU, 16 gigabytes of random access memory, and 512 gigabytes of Transcend SSD, and a 2 terabyte Samsung SSD. So this is, as another in, in, in perhaps the kids' parlance, a hell of a machine. And he's using Sysbench for a lot of these. So you could, re- and what's nice is he just gives you the commands to reproduce. It is really nice. Yeah. You can reproduce, you could just go on your machine and do this yourself. Anyways, he had some interesting tests. He, mount, he, wanted, to, he wanted to nail the CPU, he wanted to check disk IO, network performance. And of course, you've got to do the classic. He built the Linux kernel. You've you got to do mm-hmm. that. That's, that's, that's required. Uh, and so when he starts with the CPU benchmark, he said that he saw almost identical results between Ubuntu native and Ubuntu under Windows. Uh, it took basically 2.8 seconds to run 10,000 CPU instructions. Not bad. Mm-hmm. But I want to move on to the memory benchmark because this is where things got interesting. So he's going to move 100 gigabytes of data through memory. Native Ubuntu was able to move data through memory at 4,235 megabytes a second. Ubuntu on Windows was able to do it at 2,309 megabytes a second. So two gigabytes versus four gigabytes. That's a second. That's a huge difference. This difference exposes a bit not only the difference in I.O. performance between the two systems, but also the overhead involved with uh, Ubuntu under Windows. Mm -hmm. So then another interesting look here was disk performance. He says we're uh, writing a one gig file with a, a gig, is, is just nothing but zeros, synchronously to the disk. Native Ubuntu yields about 147 megabytes average write speed to the disk. Ubuntu under Windows manages to get 248 megabytes. Two, so a difference of well, so 147 under, under Native Ubuntu, 248 megabytes under Windows. A massive difference! How is this possible? Well, it's a bit of trickery on Windows. The flag that we're sending the DD command, the desync command, which is supposed to guarantee synchronous writes to disk, ensuring that every single byte is in fact written to disk and not cached in a buffer memory. You know, kind of cheating the throughput. That same flag was used on both the Windows and the Ubuntu machines, but it seems the implementation of Ubuntu under Windows does not yet quite support that. 
And you got to wonder about that, like in how many cases they're like, you know, you, there's there's a lot of it, stuff, things to implement in that layer. So it yeah. makes sense that not everything is yeah. bit perfect. Uh, and yeah, and that's a, there's a big translation probably happening there. Uh, network throughput, specifically testing TCP bandwidth using IP perf. The native Ubuntu machine averaged 935 megabits, while Ubuntu on Windows, an average of 805 megabits. A noticeable reduction there. But the one we've all been waiting for, the Linux kernel compilation test. The native Ubuntu build took 5 minutes, 38 seconds, while Ubuntu on Windows took 8 minutes and 47 I don't want to wait that long. No, no. Uh, It's suggested, by the way, this is, remember I mentioned this earlier. Uh, So uh, Dustin contacted some folks at Microsoft and you know what their response was? What? I know we turn this on by default, but um, you might want to disable Windows Defender. (laughs) No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah, so now he didn't have time to try it, but uh that does that uh, wow. seems to be Well, anyone else if anyone has a has this redstone Yeah. They could try it. Stuff built in. You should try it. Yeah. Get back uh, to us about it. So he he concludes from a performance perspective, CPU and network bound processes will perform nearly identical in Ubuntu on Windows as native Ubuntu on bare metal would. For heavily cached disk IO operations, Ubuntu on Windows might even outperform native Ubuntu on bare metal. But for heavily randomized reads and writes and memory-heavy operations, Ubuntu on Windows does introduce a bit of overhead that might be noticeable in some workloads. Pretty cool test. It is kind of an interesting, um, even though you you introduce this you know translation layer, it's kind of an interesting way now where you can benchmark a Windows system or a Linux system and then use the very same tool regardless of if it actually supports Windows or not and uh, run the same benchmark. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and... You know, it really does also speak to the to the rather awesome technical implementation that the Windows uh, subsystem folks have done here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, uh, it's damn near wine quality, you might say. Also, it's probably a lot easier now. You have Windows. You want to. I mean, you want to install Linux, but you're kind of a purist and you want your own custom compiled kernel. Makes it a lot easier to do that too. I want. I want to continue to follow it with like a remote. Distance, like I, I, I'm not going to install Windows 10 and try right. it. Right, we're not I'm posting not, the show from. Linux no, I'm inside not that Windows motivated. 10. But I will draw. I will. I will watch. I will watch as things drive by me, and I'll go. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I'll note that. I do see a lot of excitement from like the people who use Linux professionally because mm. they have to deploy to servers, but like aren't they're not they're not watching the show. They're not Linux enthusiasts, and th- there seems to be a lot of excitement there. Just like, yeah. a, oh, I don't have to use a Mac. It's a nice like, feature. I don't have to install Sigwin. Yeah, you know, uh, Rikai, editor right. of the show, right here, oh, yes. the and beard. much more. The beard ended up breaking down and taking advantage of the free upgrade. I understand. I understand, Rikai. I, I only slightly judge you. And he went ahead and installed the uh, Ubuntu subsystem. And, you know, it's, it is it is the only, the only thing I can des- – the only way I can describe it as is it's unnerving. It's unnerving to all of a sudden see him using Linux commands – in what is clearly a Windows box. You see, that is weird. It's like, whoa, that's not... LS. That's not right. You mean dir. Yeah. <laughs> you mean dir. Uh, Wimpy, can we go back to full bandwidth uh, here for a second? Full spectrum wireless bandwidth. And uh, can you uh, chime in a little bit for the folks over here in the U.S. that might not have heard about it or those that missed out on what the heck FOSS Talk is and how the hell it went? Because uh, I listened to uh, the Ubuntu podcast and it sounded like a pretty fun event. <laughs> Yeah, so FOSS Talk, um, it was the first uh, event 
It was organised by Joe Ressington from the Linux Luddites. I happen to know Joe is trying to fall asleep at the moment with uh, one earphone plugged in. So if you can just pan me left to right a few times, I know that'll irritate <laughs> him insanely <laughs> and wake him up. Um, so yeah, Joe, Joe organised the event. It was uh, this uh, Saturday just gone. Uh, it was uh, a small, a small event. Uh, Joe, Joe wanted to make sure that um, you know it. It was small enough that if lots of people didn't turn up who'd said they were going to turn up, it wouldn't look, um, you know, like it was a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, I think pretty much everyone that um, requested a ticket turned up. So there was about fifty people wow. at this event. It was at a um, uh, a pub in London, so it was a, a gastro pub. So good food, good mm, beer. Yeah. Um, on the ground floor, um, there was a small hotel above it, and then a, a basement venue where the event itself took place. Um, and we had the um, Linux Luddites do a forty-five minute show. Uh, the Ubuntu podcast, we did one, and then Linux Voice did a podcast. And then there was uh, what was billed as the drunken mashup as the last show of the evening, uh, which was uh, Joe and uh, Stuart Langridge and Dave Mecker-Slippers from Geek News Radio. And a lot of heckling from the audience by that time of night with the intake of beverages. Um, So, yeah, four four 45-minute podcasts with a half hour in between, um, an hour and a half or so beforehand for drinks and chatting, and then late night drinking at another venue around the corner uh, afterwards. So it was um, basically a big um, social um, gathering um, with some podcasts going on to keep people entertained. That That's a nice way to describe it. I like that atmosphere. Uh, you know, it, it makes me want to I, – I, I just – I want to go like let's do this here in the States. Let's figure out a time after scale or some, some other Linux fest or something like that and let's just do one of these here because that's – oh, man, that seems cool. We, yeah. I wish you guys would have streamed it live. If I could, I would have watched that for yeah. sure, or even listened. I would yeah. have listened to them too. Yeah. I know that, but you actually overall the audio turned out pretty good. So uh, I got to give credit. Yeah, Joe. Joe knows what he's doing. He, uh, I, I was Joe's roadie, so he just pointed at cables and told me what to do, and I got on with it. Um, but yeah, I think I think the idea was to keep it as simple as possible this first time round, and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and maybe. There'll be another event. I, I think the aspiration is definitely for there to be another one, or this is the first of many. Who knows? The live, the and live maybe show the is scope and scale will increase over time. Good, good approach. Really, very good approach because the, there is nothing like doing a live performance. Mm-hmm. Doing a, doing something that you normally have recorded in a in a setting where you're comfortable. You have everything you need. Your notes. You have time to collect your thoughts. You're often in a room by yourself when you're podcasting. Right. And yeah. and to take what has been and, and, and you do that for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, sometimes years and years and years. And then all of a sudden you do it in the same room with people. So not only do you not normally record looking at these people, but there's also a whole bunch of other people there that are looking at you and the, you're always performing. The performance never stops. There's uh, no downtime. And there's, there's no, no t- there. Right. There's no editing out that pause. Um, so what was that like for you, Wimpy? Hey, it was good fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Joe, Joe's actually telegramming me as we're talking. He's saying that someone said to him that it, uh, that Foss Talk was like the best bits of Og Camp, but in one evening, 
which is a glowing endorsement. Uh, and it really was. It was basically a condensed version of the social track of Og Camp um, with many of the Og Campers in attendance. Not all of them because it was obviously in London and Og Camp is typically in the north of England. So we didn't have the full spread. But um, yeah, the event venue was very small. So uh, we were only about three or four feet from the front row of the audience so you could see <laughs> the whites of people's eyes mm-hmm. and you you could very definitely tell whether or not uh things were going uh g- going well or not uh thankfully see it seems it just seemed like to go well just like with music where it's like it's a whole different thing for the performer but also for the audience mm-hmm. that kind of live interaction you mm-hmm. really feel much more close mm-hmm. much more engaged with the presenter uh-huh. plus physically yeah. you never live up to what people expect by listening to you it's just it's it's, it's a winning it's never right. a winning thing it's <laughs> So there's that initial awkward yeah. moment okay. where they know you, they they have heard you, they know how you think, hours how you and talk, hours. and you have no idea who they are. And uh, it's it's it is funny because uh, I have I have entered I have um, I developed a a response. So when people like every now and then I'm out shopping, it, it it does happen where I'll run into a listener, and so people go Chris. And and what do you do when somebody if somebody walks up and you go Wes you know you don't have a so my right what do you say my initial response is that's me <laughs> and, and so when I started dating Hadia she noticed that this is how it happens when people <laughs> run into me in public is that's me so she she makes fun of me every time that's it happens great and because people walk up to you and they're like oh I know you and I have no idea what your name is yeah. so and you don't know if it's like someone you should know or if it's someone you've never met or but at the same time then all of a sudden you get to put a face to like an IRC name mm-hmm. or like an email See, address. That's exciting. Yeah, so I say wimpy. Yeah, there was there was lots of that. Lots of people introducing themselves and saying it's good to put a face to the name. Yep. Um, and also lots of people very generously buying all of the podcasters' beers. <laughs> Joe rather, <laughs> rather, rather optimistically had a large bucket in which to collect money to buy beers for the podcasters. <laughs> good thinking. And, uh, and people were extraordinarily generous. So, um, yes, my, my headache the following morning... Uh, reflected people's generosity in that regard. So I just have one last question, and, and Poby's not here, so I want the full real story. Um, what was the deal with the laminated show notes? Uh, okay. So um, the Ubuntu podcast has a reputation for being very well organized. Yeah. And in particular, um, Graham from Linux Voice finds this a point of much irritation so the laminating of the show notes was really and that passing really the biscuits just to wind up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was yeah. pretty good that was yeah that was good um not laminated show notes is is i almost want we'll to copy that maybe. i almost want to continue that tradition because it's it's so brilliant i i think it's it's a good reference making notes right on top it's great yeah yeah you could uh-huh. <laughs> it worked really well actually because we knew we had 45 minutes and so on our on our show notes we had um uh the times as you know at um 7 30 7 you know, the bits that we were doing and we actually stuck to time perfectly. So it wow. worked out really well in the end. Hmm. Well, it sounds like a fun event. And uh, if we ever get a few of you over here in the U.S. Let's at one here. time, we've got to. Yeah, it was. So if anyone isn't hasn't heard, so you can go to the current ep- uh, episode of Linux Luddites. They've got their live recording published now. The current episode, it's uh, episode 23 and a half of the Ubuntu podcast, is just the live recording from Talk. I don't know if Linux Voice are going to be recording their live recording because 
that was there was a fair amount of beer had been consumed by that point in the evening. <laughs> but, but I think Joe is planning to release the drunken mashup show Ooh. as soon as uh, he gets his domain whitelisted with PodTrack. So right. I think definitely three of the shows are going but to if be. You're, um, if, be you're, if you're listening at home, I think the order to listen to would be Luddites 84, then the Ubuntu podcast, then Linux Voice if they get it out. Right. That's if you want That's to go by right, the order yeah. of the night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, Linux Luddites, Ubuntu Podcast, Linux Voice, and then the mashup. Love it. Well, that sounds like a fun event. Yeah, it really does. And I think it maybe, really was. Maybe we could and, see the laminated you know, show notes uh, tradition continue on. And thanks to Joe for organizing it because it's a new event in our schedule now, and it was a lot of fun. How come we don't do more like that, Wes? We, we need that. We're here. going to. Yep, All absolutely. Right. We'll figure that. We're out. resolved. Janice. Janice, would you get, get on right that? on that? All right, so she'll take care of that for us, I'm sure. All right, uh, so I want to talk about SSH hacks. We got to move in. That was the community updates, and there's a hell of a lot of them. It's good stuff too. So thank you, everybody. Let's uh, get ready for uh, the next segment by mentioning DigitalOcean. Now, this a lot of what we're about to talk about you could easily try out on DigitalOcean. Simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to getting it. Your, your whole system up and running in no time. Really simple, straightforward, and intuitive. Great UI to manage it all. You can get a system spun up in less than 55 seconds. And for about $5 a month, you can run a system with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. I say about because I actually would look at DigitalOcean more like in the hourly context. If you go over to their pricing, switch over to the hourly button there. And then you can really see how this rocks. Use our promo code DO Unplugged. DO Unplugged. All one word, lowercase. You Smash it together, you put it in there, you apply it, and they'll give you a $10 credit. Now, here's what I did this morning, just to give you an example of how handy this is. I wanted to try out a local wiki. And I don't really want to learn DocuWiki syntax, although I, I might just end up doing that. But I wanted to try out, I think it's MD Wiki. It's Markdown Wiki, because I use Markdown every single day for our show notes. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if my wiki was Markdown? Oh, here we go. And so I looked at MD Wiki, which apparently hasn't been updated for twenty by since twenty fourteen. But I thought I don't care if I use this, I'm going to put it on my own local LAN, so I, I I could live with that. But I'll be honest with you, I didn't feel like installing Apache on my system and setting up PHP. I, I just I have better things to do. But I want Chris, to try. Don't set up PHP. Just don't know, do it. Don't I do it. <laughs> I know, right? I have better things to do, uh, and I just don't want to junk up my system. But I wanted to see if MD Wiki was a viable solution because if it is, I will set it up on a home server that's on my LAN for my notes about things like warranty information about appliances or, uh, you know, the model of a surge protector I got for this or that. You know, these kinds of stupid things that you kind of want to keep track of, especially when you're doing warranty stuff. But you don't want to keep the papers around. You don't no. want to keep anything like that. So I thought, OK, MD Wiki it is. So instead of junking up my system in just seconds, I spun up a San Francisco based droplet. With Ubuntu 14.04, Apache, MySQL, and PHP all good to go. I log in. I change my root password. First time I log in, I change my root password. Right there in the message of the day, it tells me, this is my, my web directory. Drop your HTML files in here. This is the URL to go to. Mm -hmm. This is your info.php if you want to see what your PHP install can do. I mean, I love that. I, up, I SCP'd up the md.wiki.html file. And I mean, within two minutes and 45 seconds, I was able to determine that MD Wiki was a total waste of my time. Like, it just sucks. It doesn't render properly. It hasn't been updated for years. It was a, and, and you know what? I immediately destroyed the drop. Huh. 
I had just like kill it. One and API call I, away. Did I even pay a penny for that? I don't know. That's why if you use the promo code Deal Unplugged, this is just a scenario where you apply a ten dollar credit to your account and leave it in there. And when you want to try something like this, it, you, I, I deployed the entire stack, uploaded the file, and determined that it was a garbage project now within minutes. I didn't have to junk up my local host. I could have installed all of that stuff on my Linux box, but I don't, I, really, I don't want Apache installed on my Linux box. You don't need it. It was next really nice. exists. And that's why it's great to get that. Ten- so even if you, if you want to try out the $5 machine and run it two months for free, that's awesome. But if you just want to apply the credit, you can try out like their super powerful machines just for minutes. Try them, create something, and then, and then destroy them. And if you want to end up – and here's the other thing. Like if I was trying something other than MDWiki because I would always run that locally. But if I was trying something else and it, it worked fine, then I'm done. It's in production. It's on a production-grade system. It's ready to go. Bam. You have backups. You have snapshots. Whatever you need. Yeah, and they have an API that makes it super easy to interact with open source apps that have already been written. So check it out. Use the promo code DOUnplugged. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring – and you know they got a they got a brand new uh, fancy looking website too. I, know, I was about to comment on that. It it's looks nice, nice, right? Yeah, mm, nice and clean. All right, so we're going to talk about SSH hacks, and I definitely want to hear from our virtual lug on their hacks, but or you know tricks. Um, but we should start by mentioning that OpenSSH version seven point three was released recently, and it has a feature in it that I I want to talk about kind of right off the top before we get into this thing because this is so cool. It added uh, some new features to the proxy jump option. Proxy jump, a command line flag to allow simplified indirection through one or more SSH base stations or jump hosts. So we have uh, an article linked in the show notes, how to use a jump host in your SSH client configurations. So uh, my, have, have you never actually surprisingly used this? Oh, and really? it seems really useful. It's very useful. But my understanding is I SSH to one machine, which then proxies my SSH connection to an entirely separate machine. Yep. And maybe I'd do this because I could have SSH running on host A on some crazy, like, port 443 kind of config, and then it could connect to my actual client. Well, it's also useful if you're part of, like, a larger enterprise or, like, I'm to sure, like, I'm sure you I know Alan uses border this. SSH server exactly. and connect to Yeah, okay, these are the things I was and a lot about. of In the past, a lot of people used Netcat or other things to, like, proxy the ports between these, but for a while now, SSH has supported this directly. They have the, the capital W command here, which takes care of it for you. So you don't need to yep. invoke any other third-party system. SSH can do it all itself. So this is just the like tip of the iceberg of stuff that you don't even think about when you when I mean I don't when I think about right. SSH and I we have like a whole line of of SSH type tricks but uh, there's one I wanted to kind of talk about that you've installed earlier today that's sort of the opposite of this stuff it's it's really for fun or maybe even for a little bit of research on your own and it's called cow wire or co-wire i guess it's cow or i don't know co-wire i guess i like cow wire because or i like, I like the cowry, idea cowry? i like the idea of like co-wire. a cow trip wire that's where i but i think it's yeah co-wire co-wire let's go with co-wire it's co-wire i love it and it's an ssh honeypot that uh wes has set up on one of his servers for us to talk about here <laughs> i love this and i'm kind of curious you've had it going for a couple of hours i ha- yeah that's true let's go look yeah so let me tell folks what co-wire does is it's a SSH honeypot designed to log brute force attacks and shell interactions performed by the attacker. Uh, here's some of the interesting features. You ready for this? It creates a fake file system with the ability to add remove files, a full fake file system resembling, I'm sorry, a Debian 5.0 install. <laughs> How wonderful is that? Uh, nice poss- and secure. Yeah. You have the possibility of adding fake file content so the attacker can cat files such as Etsy password. 
Uh, only mini- minimal file contents are included by the default. Session logs are stored in a UML-compatible format for easy replay. And uh, CoWire saves the file downloads with WGit and curl or uploaded with SF- SFTP and SSCP for later inspection. So you, if, they, if, they, if they transmit something up to the box, it stores it away for you to look at later. Which is great. Like, what are they trying to do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a honeypot. Yeah, it's it's a very easy to set up honeypot. How oh, you, how easy was it to set up? I think they might need. I, I'll see about maybe sending them some pull requests. There's a couple dependency things that maybe needed to be updated, updated or on like at least on. They had some instructions for Debian. At least with sixteen oh four, there was a few things like their pip requirements were slightly off. Uh, but I mean, no more than like ten minutes of. Once you've got the Python dependencies installed, they have a very nice uh, start and stop set of bash scripts for you that <laughs> you can specify even like a virtual environment for you to use that so you don't have to set up anything like that. Uh, so I thought it was pretty easy to get going. They do recommend that you have a non-root user that you run this as because all of the SSH sessions will be in that user's name. Oh, yeah. So is that what you did? Yes. So do you... Uh... So, okay. So could we give the uh, live stream an, a URL to SSH into, or I mean an address to SSH into... But they would they would have to know the I mean so essentially it's a it's a honeypot they could bang on and that we could watch what they do, yep. but it does legitimately have like a, a username and password they would have to know like they they'd actually have to be able to hack it right. Well, you can configure that so there's that's, actually that, a, that's oh. sorry no but go that's on. exactly that that's exactly the point of a honeypot you don't just give direct access you need to make it you know challenging so that it seems real. The first place. Right, yeah, for for yeah, for a legitimate honeypot. But if we want to let the audience bang on it. And so it actually starts out the way this one's configured is it denies them the or at least the default config they ship with. It denies the two most common root passwords, which is one is just root and the other is like ABC123 or something like that. Or one, two, three, four, five, six, I think is what it is. It denies those two, but right now it's configured so that pretty much any password and any username right, want, will get you in. Do you want to put the host name in the chat room? We'll see if people want to hack away. And then, so I have up on this screen over here, is this the, is this the correct log file? It looks like it. So you, what have you Maybe used Maybe refresh here? it right now, though. Okay, what have you used to generate this uh, live log file that I'm looking at here? That is SoCat and uh, Tail-F. There are some better, there are some fancier ones that like WebSocket D is kind of like a Unix philosophy style yeah. WebSocket thing. Yeah. It just takes a little bit of JavaScript on the client side to get you to render it. So in the future, I'd like to have a better prepared live log file but here is a very hacky um so URL. We, we put it in there it's a uh, waspness is that what it is waspness yep dot noblepain.com uh i've seen some incoming connections right now <laughs> coming into your system wes i'm going to zoom in on the text so we can we can see it so if it th- in theory would we see what they do on the file system go to the log here or are we just seeing their connections you know, and it does at least like it logs um it doesn't necessarily log all the output seemingly but it does log and they have a separate audit log i can show too um it does log all of the commands that people try to run hmm. so it'll say okay. like like it, and it denies some so like if config ip it won't let you run but like it'll it'll show you when it finds curls w gets that kind of stuff i don't i instead of so i won't show people's ips on the screen but uh, i see people like honey alex i see trying to log in right now uh this is interesting uh, new keys. Uh, looks like I don't see if anybody's gotten access yet. Do you? I see authorization failed. This is really. They fun. should have. So if you, I mean, I think even with a blank password, you should be able to get in. <laughs> oh, that's easy to hack. Actually, maybe these people are connecting here because I don't see failed logins for these ones. 
Oh, here we go. Oh boy. Oh, we got some. We got some activity happening now. We got some Python scripts running. This is uh, this is getting this is going south real fast. Here. Oh my gosh, Wes. Oh, I don't know if this is a good idea after all. But this is pretty fun to watch. It so. is pretty fun to watch because we get to we get to watch from like this sort of like admin perspective and watch people go crazy. This is kind of a fun, real easy. Oh, well, I mean, relatively easy to set up. Uh, Honeypot uh, CoWire. We'll have a link in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. Um, that's pretty neat. Are you watching this still? Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> so in the future, I'd like to have a live log that like scrolled as you update. And right now, yeah, because you have to keep scroll. scrolling. Yeah, but that's still. Yeah, some people. Wow, it's surprising how many people can't log in. And is command not found ls? You don't have ls on this thing. That that is weird. I think it should. I mean, when when hmm. I. It's interesting. I can see what commands they're attempting to run to. Yeah, see, I like this that a lot. The, yeah, this is the future of pair hacking. Yeah, you know, there's already pair programming. We could have competitions around this legitimately. We could set up because we could populate that thing with like uh, rewards and like uh, things for people to find, and oh, we yeah. could set and up. And it like, seems very configurable, hackable. It's just like a Python. Script, imagine so. if if we if we seeded that with with a pretty big user land full, of, and we had files in there they had to find and get access to as part of a challenge. So you have to get access to the remote SSH box and get in there and find certain things on the file system. That could be a fun game, that could and you could watch game. it all in real time. Now, everybody, so I'm just going to mention it real quick, and we have a great tutorial linked in the show notes. Everybody knows you can use SSH to copy files, right? You guys all know that. I think that's pretty basic. You probably, if you're listening to this show, know that. But if you don't or you haven't messed around with it a lot, uh, if you've ever heard that uh, Linux is hard to copy files around on a network, then you don't know about SCP. So uh, we have a link in the show notes that walks you through how to use it. I use it almost every single day. Almost. Almost. Yeah. But just moving something down from a droplet to my machine or something like that. Like I just – Especially I love if you're doing it right and you already have your key off, uh, authenticated, that kind of stuff set so, up, it makes it very easy. You know, we have we have some instructions on that too. There are commands you can do to uh, remotely copy your keys around, and we're gonna we're gonna get to that. Uh, before we go any further, though, I before I get, go through my list, does anybody in the mumble room have something they use SSH for all the time, like uh, you know, copying files with rsync or something like that that they want to mention? Because I think there's some uses that people have come up with for SSH to like publish something remotely. Or grab something or update something remotely that a lot of us don't think about because we don't have those use cases. So if anybody has an interesting SSH uses, I'd love to hear it. I heard in my in the company I work in, if, if any of the developers is using SSH to connect to somewhere to do some administrative work, it usually means somebody's getting fired. Why? Because system administrators should be just have everything magically working for the developer not to have to go there and set anything up. Yeah, so they don't want them. They basically don't want them having shell access. Yeah, they shouldn't be needed. Like we're trying to get rid of uh, system administrators, and now we're just praising apps for system administration. Like, oh, okay. Well, there. I mean, there is a certain amount of truth there. It just in that, like, ideally, and it depends very much on the case and how much technical debt you have, et cetera, et cetera. But ideally, you should have like a log server set up. You should have that being absorbed somewhere. You should have configuration management set up so that ideally, the need to SSH is minimal but there are lots of cases qa etc where you really do need that ssh yeah access. for sure uh Ike, i'd love to hear the use cases over at uh, solus so in solus we had to come up with a scalable build system as you can imagine and we use ssh in a couple of ways to achieve this basically the there is a couple of rules whenever writing any software rule number one Never write your own crypto algorithm. Never do yeah. it. Right? It's rule number one. Uh, rule number two behind that, really, apart from don't use glib, uh, it should should probably be don't reinvent authentication. So 
have any of you guys used anything like uh, Garrett or Gitalite or anything like that? Yeah, I've seen yep. Gitalite before. Okay, so one of the very unknown features of SSH is you can actually tell it to run a command associated with a public key. Oh, yeah. So, sure. yeah, so what we've taken advantage of there is there is an isolated SSHD, which is completely separate from the Solus infrastructure itself. Um, this one is public key based only and exists only to serve our build system. So you have to have a public key. And what it does is it SSHs to our script that runs behind this as a server, if you like, which then controls all the builds and uses a database to store the builds there. So we've got public key authentication and we've got um, a Unix PAM authentication going on in the background there. We didn't have to reinvent any of that. The build servers as well do it though. So we can just revoke a, um, we can revoke a key immediately for any of these servers that are doing it in a pull-based system instead of a scheduler and pushing them out. On top of that, our packages are also uploaded with SCP over another SSHD with only one, um, there's only one that can upload to this SSHD, which is a truded directory where the files then land before an iNotify daemon in the background then pulls those files in to index them into the unstable repo. So it's all SSH powered. That's pretty nice. I like that. Nice and secure and easy to understand, too. Uh, mm. Now, uh, Wimpy, you said uh, you use something that does hardware acceleration for SSH. What are you, what are you talking about? Or co in combination with hardware? Elaborate, sir. Well, so you've got the different crypto algorithms that you can um, negotiate to uh, establish your SSH connection. And if you're just, you know, at the terminal, that's kind of irrelevant. But if you're R-syncing or SCPing data then you should elect the crypto algorithm that is most accelerated on your platform. So there are ways to evaluate what the hardware capabilities are both ends. And you can then configure your SSH config so that when you're connecting to particular hosts, it forces to use the most accelerated crypto algorithm. Huh. And generally, those are the AES-128 GCM and AES-256 GCM right. um, algorithms, and, and they can run more, just over more than twice the speed of the others. So you can, on the line, get um, nearly up to 400 um, megabits per second nice. uh, transfer speed as okay. opposed to the, the, the default, which will be maybe 160, 170 megabits. Yeah, huh. that is a good one. Uh, and... Uh, Dersani, you have uh, kind of an interesting use case where you wanted to remotely watch a server's traffic to do some troubleshooting. Tell me about this. Well, I was testing a... Uh, first of all, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, yeah, we hear you. Okay, okay. Um, I was testing this uh, man-in-the-middle sort of software. It, it would um, watch outbound packages to make sure that you know, no one was surreptitiously sending bad... Uh, sorry, uh, secret stuff to the network, right? And so we had to use uh, a regex, and it would it would watch the outbound traffic using regex. Well, I ran a I well, I had to do both of the things on my server, right? I had to watch the Wowza traffic, which is a RTMP um, server, and I had to run that on my local machine, and then I had to run the client on the local machine. <laughs> yeah. So I had to use a shell SSH tunnel to myself. I could have used Netcat, but I didn't have that available at the time. So I was able to watch the traffic uh, 
inbound on the Wowza server and then like TCP dump it, or was it Wireshark it so <laughs> I can read it? Yes. That is super, super useful mm-hmm. and a nice little ha- – well, not a hack, but it's a hack in like the workflow sense of hack uh, where you can uh, sort of put yourself over there. You know, uh, we, you heard us mentioning keys. There is a command called ssh-copy-id and then user at host. And uh, this is a nice way to uh, enable passwordless logins, copy your keys around. We have a couple of articles. I have a couple that I highlighted. Like you can output – here's a good one. You can output your microphone to a remote computer speaker. If I don't I have not tried this, but supposedly using DD and then piping it over to SSH and then uh, at the remote host using DD to go to their sound device, the output of the sound from your microphone port to the SSH target's computer speaker port, sound quality is very bad, so you hear a lot of hissing. <laughs> I haven't tried it, but that sounds freaking ridiculous. Uh, also, you can attach t- uh, to a screen over SSH, which... That's probably a hack worth mentioning right there is use screen with SSH. Use screen with SSH and also uh, how to establish a remote GNU screen session that you can reconnect to right by uh, by starting the SSH command. You SSH in to the machine and then you execute the user bin screen command dash lowercase x capital RR and then start with the screen session. That's a good tip right there. Screen with that. Just reading the SSH man page is a great tip, I think, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. There are so many arguments there that just are really good. gold mines. Yeah. Uh, was, did you find this Hacker News thread? Where, I think so. Where a bunch of people posted their favorite, uh, quote-unquote, uh, things you can make SSH do. And uh, there's some very good ones, some very good ones over here that we'll link in the show notes too, uh, also. So uh, I think uh, I, I have uh, probably probably shared this story before. But I'll, 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 I'll risk sharing it again. I don't know if I actually have shared it on the show. But before I do it, is anybody else in the uh, – oh, there we go. Uh, Mr. Fax, uh, you had some – auto SSH. Right. Yeah, I saw that earlier. Tell me about auto SSH. Well, auto SSH is very cool. For example, if you have a remote computer that cannot open a firewall port, but you have a server at home where you can open the port, then you can set up auto SSH that the server automatically – uh, that the client connects to the server automatically and then to you do a reverse tunnel to the client and get a shell of the client. And so you can use auto SSH for backing up the client via OrSync or something else. It's really, really cool. That is, I, I like that. And uh, so it's auto SSH. And Wimpy, you were talking about FWKNOP, which is like a, I'm guessing, a, a port knocking tool. What's this? It's it's not port knocking. It's um. Uh, a single packet authentication mechanism ah. so it's like an additional layer on top of ssh so, so like instead you, of port knocking something maybe in, in like yeah. alternative so cool. so cool. so it's it's sort of uh, a key-based packet authentication mechanism that then enables you the rest of your ssh connection to then establish so you can have spa and then you have your key-based authentication so this is the way we have things. We have hmm. SPA, key-based authentication, and then you get a one-time password as well. Um, and it actually prints the QR code on the terminal that you can scan with your phone to get your your then second factor as well. So it's like three-factor authentication to a, right. an SSH jump <laughs> server. That's awesome. I guess I, I almost I, I, I guess I almost feel like I have to mention yes, you can do X eleven forwarding with SSH mm-hmm. too. I think people would be like, How come you didn't mention this? Um and probably remote command execution. That's yep, all so you course. can you can just 
just send a remote command over there, which is amazing. The other uh, one is socks your, proxying. Yeah, socks yes, proxying. That was, huge. of course, I have to mention that. Yeah, I will say too. Like you're talking about SCP, which works great, but when you're doing a recursive copy, a lot of times piping tar over SSH will be better. Yeah, or rsync. I mean, what, or rsync. I've yeah. used rsync in combination. So rsync is managing the file copy, but it's doing it through SSH, which, if you think about it, is such a brilliant combination of two of the best things. It's it's legitimately like like Nutella and peanut butter, which. <laughs> Really does go well together, and peanut butter and jelly, which my kids don't think go well together, but one day I will convince them does go well together. It is so great because you get the power and the and and really the reliability and peace of mind of rsync with the encryption and protection of SCP or SSH. So that's a great combo too. So I feel like I'd be probably remiss because a lot of comments would be, uh, yes. "How come you didn't say these?" Because uh. those are sort of the obvious ones too. Yeah, the uh, the uh, proxying stuff is really nice. Like I've seen a lot of like articles online called the poor man's VPN using SSH. There's a lot of articles that, that cover how to. Oh do yeah, that. especially with the Sox proxy, aka the capital D flag. It's better than sync thing. Hmm. hmm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that might be true. All right, Mumble Room. Anybody else have a uh, an SSH a tip or trick or hack that they love about SSH before we move on? Going once. You do? I do. I just want to mention the lowercase w flag for setting up um, ton slash tap devices. Ooh. SSH can be your layer two, layer three VPN. It's it's yeah. all over TCP. So like if you're super performance critical, it's not the thing to do. But right. uh, if you're on a good connection, I've gotten speed ups for like over bad links over like using DigitalOcean. Yeah. Uh, or if you just want something like you have some apps that aren't a, don't respect SOX proxies, but yeah. you want to proxy them through SSH. Yeah. On Linux, you just, bam, now you have a new interface, bind them to that interface, there you go. Yeah, and uh, it's nice because everything you need is already installed, as long as you have SSH installed. Exactly. And so it's, and, and you know it's You need to enable the right things in your SSHD config on the other end, but that's the case for a lot of these. Will you toss that in the uh, in the show notes too, how to do that? We'll yeah. have a link in there how to do that. You know, this is actually, so how to do it. How, this, I should I should really stop right here, and I should mention Linux Academy, because if, if we're talking about this stuff and it's a little over your head or you want to know more Linux Academies would just be a fantastic resource. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplug to support this show. Now, they also have all the advanced topics around Linux, but it, it really is a great platform for learning more about this kind of stuff. They've got the essentials and, they, and, and really all of the things that have sort of been built on top of it. Stuff you, you really, if you haven't been through proper training, the little details you might have missed that make a difference. Plus, on top of all of it, they have instructor mentoring to help you as you go learning paths series of courses and content planned by instructors for very specific types of career tracks. And then if you're busy, they have learning plans. So you can pick a course and set a time frame and fit to it that matches your schedule. They have note cards that can be forked by the community to help with studying. They have video courses with self-paced in-depth video guides on every single freaking topic around Linux, the cloud itself, DevOps, the labs and exercises are unique because they give you the real-world confidence to do this stuff. You're walking away from something where you've really worked hands-on with it. So you have the confidence to work with the real technology in production. And for me personally, that would be worth the entire Linux Academy subscription right there. The Nuggets give you a deep right dive into something when you just want to go into a single topic. And they have iOS and Android apps to help you study from your mobile device. And they have a community stacked full of Jupyter Broadcasting members because they've been, they've been advertising here for a while now. And they're constantly expanding. They're always adding new content. They're always improving the previous content. 
From fundamentals to the advanced stuff, check them out at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. If anything we've mentioned today sounds new to you, you probably could have learned more at Linux Academy. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Over the years, I have bought into many a management systems. Systems to manage my photos, systems to manage my MP3s, applications and systems to manage my notes, my personal notes, my client notes, my family notes, my work. Oh, Wes, you know what I've learned after all of these years? Just put it on the damn file system. Yeah, right. Turns out we solved this in like uh, the early 90s. Yeah, just make a damn file out of it. And if you have it on the damn file system, then I can get to it when I SSH in. I can get to it when I bring up my file manager. I can get to it from my Gwake drop-down terminal. I can get to it from an application that sits on top of it. And um, not many times, I would imagine, in my adult life will I sort of completely start over. So when I – so uh, the house I moved out of uh, – it was unique because we had a lot of input on how it was built, and I had a lot of wow. knowledge of how it was wired and mm-hmm. where where everything was done at and what was what. But I, I didn't properly capture that information. So as time went on, the details became fuzzy. I thought I'd memorize it, and I, 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 today I couldn't even tell you how many Ethernet ports I had installed, which to me just seems ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So uh, I now that I've, I've moved into Lady Jupes and I've begun building a home network, which you and I were talking about on the pre-show – I thought to myself, I am really at such a square one position again, which is so rare, which I know you're kind of going through the mm-hmm. same thing having just moved. It's rare when you're like, I can tear down everything I have right now yeah. and start fresh. And, and one of the things I have learned about myself is I will forget the little details over time because life goes on. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be an accomplishment if I could document properly Everything, serial numbers, warranty information, support information, implementation, configuration details, and have a spot to put it all that I could recall it fairly easily. And so that started me down the path of trying to find the perfect wiki software. And I think I kind of blame Noah for this. Right. You know, because he started talking about it on Linux Action Show this Sunday. He got a diary where he puts his thoughts and feelings into about clients and stuff. And I thought, geez, I, I could really use a spot that was... Kind of safe. Some sort of like personal store. Yeah. You can come back to it. It's there when you want it. You can ignore it when you want to. And, and maybe in, and legitimately, Wes, years could go by before I have to reference exactly. information. Because it's like – Without touching it. It's like the, it's like maybe my refrigerator's warned him for me. Or that old notebook you have and you come back to yeah. it like, oh, OK. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so I started with uh, DocuWiki, which is a very simple to use local wiki. Uh, yeah, it's really nice. I really, I highly recommend it if you are very familiar with its wiki Sintai. Um, but it didn't fit my needs, so I, I was a little disappointed. I looked at MD Wiki, didn't fit my needs. What well, hasn't been updated? So I've been a little, I've been a little disappointed. So uh, Wimpy, I want to hear about uh, ZimWiki because it is definitely a name I've seen go by online, seen it mentioned by the community a few times. Have you messed around with it? Yeah, it's what I use for keeping all of my sort of documentation notes so it's a desktop wiki a gtk desktop application for doing wiki and note taking and it does you know document linkage like a wiki works but all of the documents are just text documents so i've got those synchronized to all of my machines now the syntax is it like its own unique little uh, special syntax or is it 
Um, well, I'll tell you what, let's, I'll bring one up in a text editor rather than Zim and I'll tell you. Oh, okay. I'm... Yeah. And, and it just, it just, it just looks at local files on your file system and, uh, just... yeah. So I just got a folder called Ooh. notebooks and it's all I in there. I've, I think I have looked at ZimWiki in the past. You know, it does seem very familiar. Yeah. I, but so why use this instead of just create files on your file system? Why not just have a directory structure that makes sense and just put it on the file system? Um, they... Its content type is text ximwiki, and the markup looks like mm, markdown-ish. Hmm. Hmm. I like markdown-ish. I mean, it depends on how close, but... And, and you find this to be more efficient than just having a, a good file structure? Yes, because um, you can cross-link the documents, and you can create like a, a kind of higher level category, and then hierarchies within that... Yeah. And it does the wiki linking within it as well. So if you want to, you know, link back to stuff. I think, I mean, I don't use it for formatting. I use it for hurling information in. So when Mm -hmm. I'm chatting to people on IRC, I just grab whole conversations out of IRC, dump them into ZimWiki. So I've got a record of that. And then I can go through and, you know, tidy it up at a later date and turn it into something, you know, more useful in fact um, but i've rec- got all of my documentation in there and how are, are you syncing that at all or are you just one machine has it all no i'm i sync it okay using um i use sparkle share for that oh man i want nice. oh geez i want to pick it i'm thinking about using sparkle share for a few you know that's days. the one i haven't tried yeah i i like for it. for this sparkle share works really well yeah because it's just text. You, I mean, you can put screenshots and stuff in there, and Sparkle Share is designed to do that sort of collaboration thing. So it's got Git behind the scenes. Yeah, do you to just blast it, all up to GitHub? You just like slam it all up there. You don't have to do it. Sparkle Share <laughs> just does it for you. It, it spots <laughs> nice. the read and write operations and does all of the commits for you, and it has a format for the commit so you can see what was an addition or an edit or a deletion or, a, you know, and so on. So mm-hmm. it just uh, takes care of it all for you. I, I, as I recall, the last time I, I do remember now looking at this, you can do things like you can set bolted lists or, or I mean, lists that you can checkbox, like checkbox lists. You can have calendar embeds yeah. with reminders. Wow. And, yeah. That, yeah there's quite good. a lot of functionality. Yeah. This is a good one. This is ZimWiki, I think, has got to be top of my list. Here's the other one I'm playing with right now. And I don't know if you've had a chance to try it out. It's called it's it, it it's it's been recommended before. I think I might have mentioned it even before, and I've been I've been intending to really give it a go. It's called Tag Spaces, and you can find it at tagspaces.org. And it's an open source personal data manager, quote unquote, that helps you organize and browse your files on every platform. Now, here's a couple of the details, uh, and I'll tell you why I ended up using it too. Uh, it's it's running completely offline. There's no cloud integration at all. No login required. And uh, you can still use it on platforms like OwnCloud or Dropbox or BitTorrent Sync, SyncThing, SparkleFile, SpiderOak, whatever. Um, it's got a pay version, and it's also all open source. So I like that it ha- does have a sustainable revenue model that seems pretty reasonable. Totally. I'm uh, to be around for a while. If I'm going to rely on it, yeah. It is an Electron app. I'll get that out here, but then I'll tell you a bit more about it. You can organize your photos, ebooks, music, recipes, invoices – and you can do it on Windows, Linux, OS X, Android, Firefox, and Chrome because they have plugins. It features basic file management operations. You can create, edit notes in plain text, markdown, or HTML. You can use tag spaces to organize ebooks too, which I think is especially nice. But 
on top of that, which is also especially nice, is managing PDFs. This is something where I have gotten an influx recently of manuals and PDFs for pieces of equipment that I now have in Lady Jupiter. And I, what the hell do I do with these PDFs? How do I how do I keep track of which ones for the water pump, mm-hmm. which ones for the furnace, which ones for the uh, inverter, which ones for the converter, uh, which ones for the black tank? Like this is ridiculous. And so this kind of helps me put my head around all of this. And also it does the same thing for photos, which is nice because I have photos of particular pieces of equipment and electronics. The application supports adding tags to files in a transparent, not vendor-locking way. You can tag your files by simply drag-and-drop actions. You can organize your tags thematically in groups. Wow. has uh, smart tags, too, for date-based stuff. Of course, it has file and search and all that. It has a, it has a quote-unquote, responsive design. You can resize it. You can browse by tag. And it has a pro version if you want to spend the money. And uh, I've I've and only it sits begun right on with top it. of whatever file system you have. Exactly, and that's what I like. Is so at the end of the day, I could SSH into a home server and just browse the file system and get this information. But if I'm sitting at a machine, uh, there's a bunch of different filters I can get at and use based on tags or metadata information or file creation date or category or by linking. You know, I could go look at the RV branch or the audio equipment branch and have all of the information I need in there. And I. I, I like that I can also then lo- uh, can include things like pictures and, and markdown information so right. I can put links in there um, and all of it's offline. See, that part is awesome. So I could it, it, I just all I have to do is load up a computer with this to sit on top of the file system. It scans the file system. It gets this information. Where, do, where does it store its configuration? Now, I've, I haven't dug too far, but there is a database file in – so the way I currently use it is I downloaded um, the entire thing and you mm-hmm. can – there's packages available – but it's also an Electron app, so I just downloaded a single directory. Everything is self-contained. All the data files, okay. config, are all in this one directory. I, I tar.gz this one folder, mm-hmm. and I've got everything I need. I extract that. I've got everything I need to just have it once again point at the file system, and it's good to go again. So that's been working. That's sort of a real portable setup because I've been able to replicate that a couple of times now and, and have it look at the same network path, and that's been pretty solid. So this isn't totally in production yet because my final plan would be I'm going to set up a final file server in Lady Jubes, put all of the data on that, and okay. then from, a, from like a laptop front end, point this at it. So I've just been experimenting temporarily, and I'm, I'm liking this. I'm not totally done yet, so there is still room for something like ZimWiki or another solution. But the one thing I do like about this is over the years, I keep going back to just putting on the file system. Yeah. For my photos, consistent my audio books, my MP3s, my docs, just put it on the file system. And especially, like, it excels at that, like, if you can bin it and just stick it in a thing, you know, like a drill-down hierarchy. And so if this can add that missing layer of kind of, like, how do I find related things? How mm-hmm. do I find these? I, I don't want to put them in the same folder, but exactly. I do want to know that they're related. So if that can yeah. easily add that on top, that's right. very interesting. And it it's also available for Android. Now, I don't know exactly how this would work. I don't know how I would point Android at the same data source. However, they, they do have some web dev support, and I've, I've included that in the show notes where you can host it on and then use web dev to connect to it. Wow. And maybe that's how I could have my laptop and my Android client accessing the same information. I'm not sure I'd want to expose it this way, but it's, it's nice that it can look at a web dev share and uh, have the same functionality. It's, but I, if I was really going to go that route, I'd probably use something like SpiderOak or C-File or sync- some sort of background syncing service. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's tag. You know, spaces. I really have to think. I'm, I'm going to give that a try. I've looked at some of like there's some fuse based tags, file systems, that sort of thing, and none of them have have really stuck. But this have you thought about as you're setting up your new network in your new place if you're going to 
take down notes on how things are set up, like what the passwords are and yeah, you know, and I, I do have my own KeePass database and that kind of thing. You just kind of keep notes in there right now. I do that for like account based things, but there's a lot of stuff, kind of the stuff you're hitting on, a lot of that maintenance stuff, a lot of the just the little details in life that I don't. You know, maybe they're in Google Drive. Maybe they're on my own file server. Maybe they're backed up in Tarsnap. But I don't, I don't have a lot of those linkages between them, and I rely on the find command or something like that. So this seems like a really good way to be like, okay, these are all associated with the network. These are all associated with the, you know, the appliances that I own. So I'm very curious to see how that works out. And, and I do think that the, you know, there's a lot of objections to being an Electron app, but this seems like also kind of a, a middle ground where yeah. it's actually kind of reasonable because the features they want. I like that it's it's very pretty. It seems usable. It seems like something I could yep. have someone who wasn't even a Linux user yeah. or a tech savvy person yep. jump right in and use it without worrying about it. Seriously, when you first launch it, it it steps you through sort of the logic of the application and it, it gives you a good layout of how this is how you interact with it. This is right. where things are stored at. Yeah, it's really nice. Wimpy, you had a point of clarification about uh, open filer or filler or I don't know on last. So go ahead, sir. Fire away. Um, at the end of. This week's last, you said that you were experimenting with OpenFiler. Yes, sir. Did you mean OpenFiler? I don't know. I, I guess. I, I, why, why would I not? <laughs> Do you think Chris knows what he's talking about? What I, have you listened to the show before? I have not installed it. I I, I, uh, I I intend to install on a on a uh, Intel NUC attached to a probably about three terabytes worth of test storage uh, OpenFiler. But unless I'm calling. Do you, is this yeah, thing? are you getting the name conflated? With what? So we we were discussing Open Media Vault. There oh, are right. two. Of yes, them. that's right. Yeah, maybe I was because I haven't downloaded it yet. So maybe I was. Yeah, that's okay, actually my o- to do this week. Open, so Open y- File is like a sort of a dead project. So right. you and open. I were discussing Open Media Vault. I can't keep it straight yeah. anymore. Yeah, uh-huh. I guess it probably was. It was probably that's what I give for. Was it an off the cuff comment? Did I make? Was it an off the cuff thing I said on? Yeah, the show? Yeah, it was okay. towards the end of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, sometimes when I speak off the cuff, I don't really. I, I get. I do that. I like. I got in trouble last week uh, for saying something off the cuff too, which was just a totally like. Mm-hmm. I just you know what I'm talking about. I do, <laughs> and I I don't know what my problem is. I don't know what it is, and and unless he's a unless it's a prepared statement, take Chris's words with a grain of salt. I he guess. probably means like two versions different. I would like or that not to round the, the name though. by a few letters. The, yeah, the only reason I'm seeking clarification is because Chris and I've been discussing Open Media Vault, and if he downloads yeah. Open Filer, thinking this is what I recommended, he's going to be very disappointed. Well, I did download Open Filer though, so I guess I just won't even. I haven't ah. installed it yet, but I have downloaded it. Um, but I I don't know if I've downloaded Open Media Vault. I feel like I should. So the project's not being – because I feel like I was going to – I should at least look at it. But if the project's not really being worked on, that sort of seals that deal for me. I I, th- I thought it had sort of stagnated. And yeah. when um, – SP in the chat room says 2011. At, yeah. When yeah, you look no at the documentation, they talk about Linux 2.6. So, so you are – this is probably – this is a good time to mention this. So I – I, I don't want to overdo this. I know I've talked about this a lot recently, but I'm I'm currently in the process of of redoing my network storage and and try, and I want to try out a bunch of things. And I, I had Rockstore on the list too, although I just recently eliminated that. I was talking to Wes about that earlier today. Uh, it sounds like Open is off the list now. Right now, what's on my list is Open Media Vault um, and uh, FreeNAS, and I have feelers into QNAP because they have a rig that runs Ubuntu that I think would also be very cool. Now. I'm just crossing. I'm just going to cross Rockstore and OpenFiler off the list, which really brings it down to if I'm going to roll it myself, FreeNAS or OpenMediaVault. Like I'm down to two now, 
And what's pushing me towards Open Media Vault, in all honesty, is Wimpy has got a great testimony for it. He's he's really uh, sort of sold me on it. Do you do you want to talk about your implementation at all, or why you, at least why you've been happy with it? Um. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been using it for years and years now. I think I started using it around the 0.4 period, and and it's two two dot something is the stable release, and three dot naught is is imminent i think looking at um how that's been developing but it's a debian based nas solution uh the two series is based on wheezy and the three series is based on jesse uh, there's a a site called omvextras.org which is the community maintained plugins and it has plugins for quite literally everything imaginable uh including uh, ZFS and Snapraid and Greyhole and just about every disk management and redundancy strategy you can imagine. So it's a fun thing to play with because you can really explore the options that best suit you. If you just want to add disks of unequal sizes, there are you know redundancy strategies to support that. Or you can go with ZFS, or you can go with LVMs and XFS. You know, there's a whole whole raft of options. But it's got plugins for MB Server and Plex Server, and all of the stuff that some people use, Sick Beard and Couch Potato and stuff like that. Nice, um, the essential. Yeah, it just it's just everything. It, it just you know all in one thing, and and because it's Debian under the hood, when you need to, you can just SSH into it and set up the bits that yep. you need that exactly. are specific nice. to what you want to do. This is exactly so what I was example, talking about earlier. This is. I, yeah. yeah. So if I so just to just to jump in here, is it if I'm correct, is it based on Debian eight? Is it or I, so uh, two dot two whatever the current two series is, which is the stable version currently. That's based on Wheezy, which is Debian seven. Seven. Yeah. The three series, which is in beta at the moment, and I get the impression is very close to final. That's based on Jesse, which is Debian eight. Nice. Okay. I'm I'm currently running two. Uh, instances of um, um, Open Media Vault 2. Um, and like you, I'm preparing a NUC to replace both of those. And that's going, I'm going to, I'm building that at the moment. That's running version 3. And and how has that gone so far? Because I was thinking about starting with 3.0 when it came to Open Media Vault, just to, just so I got a sense of where they're going, because I'm not likely to want to reload my system a month from now or upgrade. Yeah. Um, and when I when I went to version two a couple of years ago, I did install the betas and upgraded them to final. So I you know I did the initial deployment on the betas. So I've done that before and it's been fine. Um, yeah, it's fine. It's got thirty terabytes hanging off the back of it, so uh, that's, that's <laughs> cooking along, yeah, cooking yeah. along just fine. And how have the plugins work for you? Yeah, so that was the thing. I I've been sort of keeping t- track on how the plugins are developing, and the ones that I need are now all available and um as best as i can see all work perfectly fine so the first beta for version 3 came out in sort of january of this year there was another beta release about a month ago um so you know there's sort of six months development time and in that period i think a lot of the work has really been around the having the community maintainers for the plugins update their plugins to support the new api in version 3 so that on launch day all or most of the plugins are available. Yes, absolutely. That's that's 
a good, healthy community, you know, and I was just talking to uh, Angela too. She has an old arch system that hasn't been updated for like a year. And uh, wow, I was thinking maybe this we is just the uh, Chris Ops special over there. Yeah, and uh, I I thought well whatever whatever media open media vault or free NAS or whatever solution I end up on I should probably replicate because she has a knock at her house. Oh, okay, and so I think I'm gonna it, whatever one I end up on I'm probably gonna do a pretty wide thing. deployment of it. At least two, maybe three installations. Well, and it would quickly. be really nice to have nailed down that like storage appliance, roll it your own. Something you understand that you don't have to necessarily buy. You can roll it your yeah. own. And or I, like, buy. I like buying local, aka having it run Linux. Yeah, I think that's nice. Um, not the FreeNAS isn't a great product. No, totally. But o- if you already Open know, Media Vault is kind of a not a spin-off exactly, but a reaction to FreeNAS. So the lead developer of Open Media Vault was a FreeNAS developer. And he had a disagreement with the direction that Freeness mm. was going, so created Open Media Vault as a result. Interesting, and also sort of uh, encouraging as well. So uh, I will put a link to OpenMediaVault.org. If you guys have any uh, implementation tips or experience, let me know because I'll be kicking the tires uh, probably in the next couple of weeks. I'll have a, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get it installed by uh, Thursday afternoon. So I have at least a couple of weeks of production experience with it. And then you mean gonna... so you can tell Alan that you really don't need BSD to run your storage <laughs> appliance? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I'll probably have a review a little bit after that. And then whatever I end up on, um, I'm going to uh, to deploy a JB stamp of approval. Yeah, I'll go put. I'm going to go install under some uh, bench seats in uh, in Lady Jupes. Cool. So are you using uh, a ZFS Wimpy or are you using a different file system? Uh, I've got one of the boxes, uh, so the primary box is running XFS on a, on an LVM, and the backup unit um, is running on ZFS. Cool. That's and cool. when I say backup, this is an active-passive cluster, so if for any reason I need to update or reboot the first one, then the uh, the other one takes over. Oh, because, see, that's ooh, great. That's the way whoa. to do it. Woe betide, I interrupt my daughter's viewing of her favorite program. Right. So I'm looking back at their release log, too, and, you know, I see uh, I see updates in May. I see updates, I think two updates in May, actually, and I see an update on June uh, 15th. So, and then, of course, 3.0 yeah. is just around the corner. So the project's, boy, what, I mean, compared to OpenFile, looking at OpenFiler's releases, this, there's definitely a pulse here. Yeah, and uh, there's also images for the Raspberry Pi and the Odroid C2 and the Odroid XU3 and 4. So there's, you know, and Qboxes and stuff. So it's quite an interesting project in that um, the the main OS is, it's just bulletproof. I mean, it it just runs and runs and runs. I've never had any problem with it. And I've used it at work as well. I've used it for file servers in offices and stuff like that. Hmm. Hmm. Now, the big question, though, can I use ButterFS? Only if you're insane. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, very good. I will. Uh, boy, I'm. I am. I am. I think irrationally excited about the possibility of rebuilding, resetting up, and picking a new file server. Right? Figuring out how I'm going to do all of this, but uh, I'll check the, back in. At the end of the day, we're Linux users here, and it's just really exciting to be like, ah, it's yeah. free, I can do it, and it solves a real problem. And stuff like Open Media Vault didn't really exist the last time I really gave right. us a thorough look a few years ago. Like, it just wasn't there, and FreeNAS was an option, but so everything has changed, which makes it all new and exciting again. 
That does bring us to the end of this week's broadcast. Thank you to everybody who tuned in this week. Those of you who are also able to join us live, and a special thank you to our virtual lug joining us live in the Mumble Room. You can participate. We just have a mic check, and that's basically it. Mumble is an open source app. You uh, go into our IRC, bang Mumble, get the info, and join us. You can participate. It's a virtual lug you can attend anywhere. Just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for the lifetimes, Linux Action Show reddit.com for the feedback and jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact email us in directly we'll see you right back here next week and thanks so much goodbye Wes say goodbye Wes goodbye everybody Ike, you're uh, you're traveling up to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, what? Yeah, I'm going to be in uh, Portland. Uh, well, I'm leaving on Saturday, so I'm going to be out there, and I'm going to be out in Hillsborough a lot as well for work. Um, I'm going to be there for two weeks. Hmm. Oh, really? Two weeks are is you, a nice window. Yeah. Are you going to have mm. a vehicle? Are you? Are you? Do you have means of travel? I am not, unfortunately. But you know, there's methods. There may be. <laughs> there may be there because we have we have a fair amount of listeners in Portland. Because uh, here's the thing, Wes, is what do you think? Uh, the JB1 Studios from Portland, that's about a, what, three-hour drive? Yeah. Uh, depends on traffic. But if we do it at the right time, yeah, three hours, yeah. we should be there. Yeah. Interesting. That would be fun, Ike. That would be a lot of fun. That would be too much fun. You know, before well, you what do I live personally install. from you. Yeah. So it's the, it's kind of the whole user story thing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so I kind of like to get your views there and then as, all, as opposed to, you know, like via text or, you know, remotely over the internet. So you can just tell me to be faces like, this is a heap of shite, you bollocks, fix it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the hardcore user test case, I see. Yeah. <laughs> wow, so uh, how how far out is that? Two weeks, or are you going to be? You know, you're going to be here for two weeks. How far out? Are you? So I'm leaving on Saturday. Um, I'm Ooh, going to be okay. meet, I'm going to be getting uh, burgers that night because it's the end of the uh, burger week, isn't it? So I'm going to be getting me burgers that night. Um, then there for a whole two weeks. Yeah, I'll be staying in Portland downtown, hanging with Linus. I actually met him um, in Dublin uh, last year. Oh, I was presenting cool. at LinuxCon Europe, so I saw him out the back there. Yeah. Yeah, LinuxCon is the place. If you're going to have a chance to meet him, that's usually the place to do it. He doesn't otherwise really like to attend. <laughs> well, we also have conferences at work as well because uh, my office is uh, the Intel Jones Farm. Well, when I'm there, it's the Intel Jones Farm campus over in uh, Hillsborough. So we have the conferences up in, uh, up in Washington, up in, uh, you know, Skamania. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so like we go up there and he's there as well. So I've met him there a couple of times, but the first time I ever met him, like I was kind of new at the whole thing and I was getting trolled and set up with him. So I kind of went running in the other direction, to be honest with you. <laughs> like at the time. Sure, sure. I, yeah, I can understand.